0: Hi, everyone. This evening, I'm coming to you with a sort of heavy heart. Um, As we got set to record this podcast episode, which you will no doubt really enjoy, we learned of a shooting at a Boulder King Supers that left 10 individuals dead. Our hearts are heavy with this news, our thoughts and our prayers are with the victims, and we hope to see a passage of Common Sense Gun Laws sooner rather than later. Gerardo Muñoz flying solo today on Two Dope Teachers and a mic. Before we get into this incredible, emotional, powerful, convicting episode of the podcast, we just want to take a moment and let you know why we're dropping an emergency podcast early this week. As many of you are aware, there was a terrible shooting in the city of Atlanta that left eight victims dead this shooting has been categorically viewed as an anti-asian hate crime uh, by those of us who are paying attention to these events as they unfold not just in the present day but also in the context of a past that has a lot of anti-asian sentiment and consistency in our in our nation want to take a moment and acknowledge the uh, victims that we know of in this time, including 74 year old Sun Chung Park, 51 year old Hyung Jung Grant, 69 year old Sun Cha Chih Kim, 63 year old Yang A Wei, 33 year old Delana Ashley Yan, 54 year old Paul Andre Michaels, 49 year old Yizhaoji Tan and 44-year-old Dayu Feng. I apologize for any poor pronunciations, but it was really important that we say their names. Friends, this is a fight that we must engage in and stand in solidarity with our Asian American Pacific Islander brothers and sisters. I have an incredible panel with my friends Tran, Kim, Carla, John, and Erica. Asian American Pacific Islander educators from across the country who speak candidly, openly, honestly, and inspirationally about this moment in our history in the context of our past. They share heart-wrenching experiences. They share their insights, their knowledge, their frustrations, their emotions in a way that's so powerful and instructive for the rest of us. I implore all of you to stand in solidarity with the Asian American Pacific Islander community. We'll be linking ways to support organizations doing this work and individuals in need. But without any further ado, we bring you an emergency podcast episode, an Asian American Pacific Islander Roundtable. Enjoy. What's up, everybody? Uh, really, really, really excited um, to get deep into this conversation uh, this evening with a group of five amazing Asian-American Pacific Islander identifying um, educators um, from all over the country. So, um, folks, just thank you for, for being here this evening. Uh, let's start with some quick intros. Uh, who are we and, um, and what, what are we coming with this evening?
1: Hi, my name is Melissa Tran. I actually prefer to go by Tran, she, her pronouns. I identify as Vietnamese American and it's my ninth year in education and I
2: teach eighth grade social studies in the far northeast of Denver.
0: Brilliant, thank you.
2: Hi, everybody. My name is Kim Stock. I live in Wilmington, Del- Delaware. I also go by she, her. I identify as a Korean American, and I am an English, and English learner teacher at McCain High School in Wilmington, Delaware. And I'm also the 2021 Delaware Teacher of the Year, and I'm running for school board, too. And
0: running for school, school board. <laughs> Kim's like, I need to be up in here. I need to be up in here. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you, Kim.
3: Hi everyone, I'm Carla Carino. I um, teach in Denver, Colorado, uh, high school social studies, mostly government and ethnic studies. Um, My pronouns are she, her, and I identify as a um, biracial Filipina Italian.
4: Hey everybody, my name is John Arthur, pronouns he, him. I teach sixth grade at Meadowlark Elementary School in Salt Lake City, Utah. I am Korean American. My mother was a Korean shop owner and my father was a soldier patrolling the the DMZ in South Korea there. And uh, yeah, I'm the 2021 Utah Teacher of the Year.
0: And I think Erica is muted. Sorry, we got live podcast. I'll
5: figure this out. <laughs> uh, you know, maybe, maybe not. Like,
0: hopefully this isn't forever, right?
5: <laughs> yeah. Zoom bingo. Um, anyways, my name's Erica Shank. I currently teach in Denver. Um, I'm a high school science teacher. Um, I also identify as biracial, um, Chinese-American, and Montanan. Um, yeah, I always have to say that. Just, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's a whole thing, but white and Chinese, essentially.
0: There you go. <laughs> Thank you. Well, folks, uh, once again, thanks for gathering this evening. Um, I, I wanna, I wanna just say that th- this group of five individuals is just—they're heroic to me because this was something that. I was trying to find a way with Kevin and through Tudor Productions to try to, you know, how do we address this in a way that is authentic and in a way that really addresses kind of the moment that we're sitting in. And, you know, as educators, we spend time we're we're in these learning spaces every single day and uh, walking in with who we are. And so um, so. I, I dropped some tweets and emails and text messages and Facebook messages and, you know, oh, I know someone like all that kind of stuff. And um, and here we've got this incredible collection of folks. And, you know, before we kind of get into the really heavy stuff, uh, one one of the things that I, I just love in life is like the opportunity to bring all of the dope people that I know and like together to like know each other um, because I feel so fortunate to know all of you. So thank you for uh, being here this evening. So, um we want to start a little bit with um with your stories. Um, on the Two Dope Teachers and Mike podcast, it's just really important that we know the stories of teachers of color as we sort of engage the work, uh, particularly in this moment when it finally feels like people are talking about racism, like talking about it, not necessarily doing a great job talking about it all the time, but talking about it. And so those of you who've been teaching as long as I have know that this conversation was just simply not happening, um, you know, in the late nineties, I'm dating myself now. Um, And so, Um, So it's an interesting moment. So let's talk a little bit about, about you. Um, Why did you choose to become a teacher? Um, What is it in your personal history or your cultural history, your family history that maybe defines a little bit of how um, you engage your work? And I think we will start with Kim.
2: Yeah, that's a great question. And, Gerardo, uh, I think that you're kind of a hero of ours. So thank you so much for for saying those nice things. Um, So actually, the reason why I became a teacher, well, I grew up in Lincoln, Nebraska. And I grew up in a very uh, white world, very Midwestern, kind of a Germanic uh, upbringing, if you you can imagine that. And um, I didn't really acknowledge the fact that I was Korean. Really, until I was in high school, and, and I think that there was a, a series of a series of events that that occurred. Um, I remember I was I was speaking to to one of my white friends, and I, I referred to myself as us or something, and she says, "Oh my gosh, you think you're white?" And it just it made me have to really confront that that part of me. And right about this time, uh, my um, English teacher, my junior year of high school, she actually had us read, not an Asian author, but she had us read uh, Maya Angelou's, uh, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings. And there was something about reading about racism in a way that I could relate to. And it was really, um, really groundbreaking uh, uh, to me to, to have a teacher bring in somebody who wasn't, who wasn't white and um, so honestly, she, she had us do this assignment where we had to teach a lesson, which was also groundbreaking for the early nineties. And, um, and so, you know, when she said to me, you know, Kim, I think you should be an English teacher. I just, <laughs> I listened to her. I mean, her words to me uh, really, really mattered. And, you know, right now as, as an English learner teacher, um, you know, I mean, honestly my experiences are not the same as my students. Um, for some of them, uh, they, they come from different countries. They they deal they deal with different um, different difficulties than than what I had to deal with. Um, but I still think as somebody who had to assimilate um, or was forced to assimilate. I'm not I'm not really sure now that I think about it. Um, but but the reality is, as somebody who had to kind of give up something. In order to fit in, in order to become, you know, this thing that we call American, and um, a lot of my students who are immigrants or are children of immigrants, it's it's one of those things where that's not necessarily something that that people necessarily want. They don't necessarily want to be identified as American, and it's um, you know it's it's an interesting conversation to to have uh, with my students and. And I can I can definitely relate to some of those things, and so I think that my students kind of see me as as somebody who also is a, a little bit different, just like they are. Um, and yet, I, I think that I can kind of use my experiences to to relate to them, and and to and because I had that teacher um, who was just not afraid to bring a little bit of of myself, uh, an author of color, uh, into the classroom. I just remember how important that was. And so it's something that I, I try to do that I've always tried to do because of it was so important. And, um, and, and it made a difference for me. And, um, and I hope that by getting to kind of know my kids and my students and, and, and bringing in a little bit of them um, too, um, I hope that it'll have the same effect for, for some of my students too.
0: Thanks, Kim. Now, Carla, I met you in the late 90s, and um, I feel like you were already a teacher. Like, you just seemed like somebody who was just going to be a teacher. Is, is that <laughs> was it as natural? Is it like, was it as natural a thing as, as it seemed, or what was kind of your journey
3: into that? And no, I never imagined being a teacher actually till after I graduated college. Um, I grew up in a really white town in between Cleveland and, and Akron, Ohio and was otherized essentially my entire childhood. Um, if you know anything about the Cleveland, Akron area, um, it is very black and white, black people, white people. Um, and so people often thought I was black growing up, you know, until they came to my house or got to know me better and came to my house. And so I, I suffered a lot of racism um, from that, um, and a lot of pressure. And I love how you framed it, Kim, being forced to conform um, to the dominant narrative of society, to white society. I felt a lot of that pressure. Um, And right before I graduated, I believe, was when the Rodney King um, beating happened in Los Angeles. And I remember watching it, um, the videos, and being like, oh, well, it's on video. So, of course, like, It's on video. We see it. We saw it. They're so (laughs)
0: busted. They're so busted. It's on video. Like, of course they're going to go to jail. Like, yeah. Yeah.
3: And then when I was in college, is when the verdict happened. And I remember sitting in my dorm room watching LA burn, the LA riots. And I was like, I just, I, I think that was part of my. Um, those walls breaking down for me because, it, you know, growing up, I had to survive. So I really didn't deconstruct race a whole lot to the level I started doing once I went to college. Um, and then Ice Cube, shortly after, came out with an album. And I can't remember if it was The Predator or um, Lethal Injection.
0: Wow. <laughs> and he
3: talked about the riots. Yeah. Yeah. And I- oh,
0: yeah. Uh, le- lethal Injection. Yeah. That's right.
3: Lethal Injection. Yeah. Okay. I had never heard race and racism articulated like that. Wow. And it it blew me away. It, it captured that anger that I had felt about the racism I had experienced, but didn't know I felt that anger. So wow. then it like unlocked something for me. Um, I started taking ethnic studies classes and was even more blown away by how much nobody taught me. Like, yeah. I never knew. I never learned about Japanese internment. I did not learn about Malcolm X, the Black Panther Party, the Chicano movement, the American Indian movement. I mean, the list goes on um, of things that I never learned. I never even learned really too much about like Malcolm X in school. Like we never deep dived and I would argue we still don't really deep dive, but um, yeah. And that was just, it was life changing for me, life changing for me. So I was an American studies major, which later became ethnic studies at CU, wow. you know, after our march for it.
6: Yep. Yep. Um,
3: and graduated college thinking, you know, someone's going to hire me with this history degree, right? And no, they did not. And so then I decided um, I was yeah, a para. History yeah. <laughs> I was a para at Boulder High. And I, it came together for me. I was like, high school kids, ethnic studies this is a great combination (laughs) Yeah, because I knew what ethnic studies had done for my consciousness. It was just, it was, it was life-changing. And so that's when I decided like, I'm going to become a teacher and use history to empower young people. Because when you look at movements across history, high school age kids, that's where it's at. Like they're the ones making moves. And so um, I just felt like I wanted to be part of that energy and, and support and empower whatever they came up with. Yeah. So that's my journey into teaching. I, I kind of stumbled upon it.
0: That's amazing. You just seem like a natural teacher. Um, so what's interesting too, and so this, this gets us into a little bit of Colorado history. Um, so, so Carla kind of like, you know, nonchalantly mentioned a little march that happened, you know, in the 90s. Um, this was actually a protracted hunger strike that happened to demand access to ethnic studies courses at the University of Colorado at Boulder, and um, there's there's a lot of those folks um, who continue to go into this community work. So uh, amazing. So gonna gonna take this over to our, our neighbor to the west, uh, John, over there chilling in Utah. Um, you know, talk to us a little bit about how you became a teacher and what it was in your upbringing that kind of led you to this, or maybe it was despite your upbringing. <laughs>
4: it was totally despite my upbringing that's exactly (laughs) right because you know my my mother is korean like i said i'm biracial and my my mother was absolutely one of those korean moms who was like doctor lawyer doctor lawyer just one or the other the whole time and uh when i called her i you know i I graduated from my undergrad with a degree in English and a minor in history. I tried to walk the path of a lawyer. I wanted to be that, that son who could say, yes, mother, tell the world. I am, I am your lawyer's son, (laughs) but I couldn't, man. I I was drawn to, to teaching because it's the most meaningful and impactful work in the world. My father, like I said, was a soldier. So I was also raised and steeped in a tradition of service and, um, and so I had to call my mom and tell her, mom, I'm, I'm going back to grad school to become a teacher. And my mother said, doctor teacher? I said, no, mom. No. And she said, lawyer teacher? I was like, no, mom. <laughs> Elementary school teacher. And Kim might know this. I, my mom said, cool. which is basically Korean for, you know, why have I wasted all these years on you?
0: You, wow! You in like it. one syllable, all it's a, of that—it's—it's an,
4: it's an efficient language, brother. Like That's it, it, it just—it communicates everything, <laughs> you know. And it's—it's—and yeah. she was right. And I, you know, I—I'm not necessarily a defiant person. Like I said, I grew up a shy kid. Yeah. um But I, I'll tell you, you know, talking about you know moments in in history that you didn't know about, or like you saw other people not paying attention to that defined you in in your your work as a teacher when i during my first year of teaching there was a, a ferry that sank in korea um hundreds of uh oh, high school age kids really? died on- and yep. and i i remember coming into work that day and i was just devastated i was upset my students could not understand why i was so upset They're like were your cousins on the boat I'm Like, no man it was just these kids died on this ferry because their teachers told them to stay in their rooms Captain came over, said, stay in your rooms. And then he abandoned ship. And all of these kids did the thing that defied logic. They just didn't apply their own reasoning to the situation and say, you know, this ship is tipping over and it's going to sink. We need to get off the boat. They listened to the authority figures uh, that they trusted and they died for it. And I just, that's informed my teaching ever since I insisted my kids apply their own thinking to everything and decide for themselves if I'm right or if I'm wrong. And they can they can call me out if they think I've misstepped or if I'm in the wrong place. And that's that's kind of defined my career and has brought me here now.
0: That's incredible. Wow. That's so powerful. And and, and that is interesting because it makes me think about the um, the histories that we as educators of color, as humans of color, have that others just don't know about. And, um, wow, that's powerful. Um, Erica, how about you? Um, the, the, you said part Chinese, part Montana, American. Um, (laughs) so talk a little bit about what it was that brought you into teaching.
5: Um, well, just like John, my mom was like lawyer, doctor, which one's it going to be? And I have an older sister. She's two years older and she really, Bought into the very strict parenting that my mom had, and my mom was the one who raised us. Like my my father was just he was out, you know, earning earning the money, and she raised us and and then and worked also at the same time. Wow! So it was like the doctor, the lawyer, and I just never felt like it was I was smarter compared to all the other kids in school. So I was born and raised in San Francisco, and I think it's. Every time I meet, like, other Asian people, we always, like, compare histories of, like, where'd you grow up? How was your upbringing? What were your parents like? And, like, I met Carla and I meet other people here who, like, grew up in places where they were the one Asian kid. And where I grew up, I was, like, one of many Asian kids. Like, San Francisco is, like, super Asian. Yeah. And, in fact, I was, like, the one white girl.
0: Oh, wow. And
5: so, <laughs> It's a very, I have, I feel like I have a very different lived experience from other people who grew up in, in other areas. Um, but everybody in high school was like really high achieving, getting really high SAT scores, taking AP calculus, and I'm like completely lost. Wow. And I just never felt like I was smart enough or good enough. But then I went into science anyways, because... In my head, I'm like, okay, science. I really liked how non-emotional I thought it was supposed to be. Okay. How non-creative <laughs> and non-cultural it was. I'm yes. like, it's black and white.
0: <laughs> I'm gonna get away from all this culture stuff. <laughs>
5: <laughs> yes. So I was I was actively trying to run from discussions about like culture and race and expectations and what all the other Asians were were doing and supposed to be doing. I was like, I'm just gonna go into science. I don't need to think about it. I don't need to talk about race yep. or anything like that. And like all the other Asians in my school, went into engineering, <laughs> yeah. and I went into biology at SF State, um, where I where I had to take um, ethnic studies classes too. Because, mm. And it was it was also really mind blowing. And that was when I started kind of connecting some dots around you know discussions about race and how it doesn't happen in science the mm. way it probably should. Mm. Um, so I decided like, I'm gonna major in bio. What am I gonna do with it? I don't wanna be in a lab all day. I really just wanna be around people who think like me because I'm a perpetual teenager. <laughs> so high school is just <laughs> where it's at. Um, so I went back to high school and my mom was supremely disappointed. She's just like, I'm still disappointed you didn't become a doctor. And it's like still cuts me to this wow. day. Wow. Um, But that's that cultural piece that's still, it's so prevalent, I feel like. Yeah.
0: Yeah, when yeah. when you said being a perpetual high schooler, I feel like that's me, like definitely. It's one of those things um yeah, that that's really well put, but yeah, those those expectations can can be super intense and um and I imagine and we'll probably revisit this later in the conversation, but I imagine that there's a real ambivalence around That like on the one hand, you know, as, as the son of an immigrant myself, on the one hand, not wanting to, you know, wanting to make good on the sacrifice that your immigrant parent or parents made to be here, but on the other hand, knowing that you have to find your path and, and that, you know, really they want you to be a free person and, you know, but it it can, I I feel that pulling. Um, So Tran, how about you? Uh, Now we don't know each other. Well, you trusted me on Twitter, which was your first mistake. Um, (laughs) But would love to hear a little bit about, you know, how it was that you chose to become a teacher. What in you um, kind of brought you to this, uh, to this place.
1: Yeah. So almost by luck, but first off, like, I'm born and raised in Oklahoma. I think the Vietnam War happened. Yeah. My grandfather, like, had to flee because he was General Special Forces and was, like, crap, and the, like, secret, apparently, for, like, generals was to go to unsuspecting places. Okay. Oklahoma City, (laughs) middle of nowhere, right? Kind of unsuspecting,
0: a little bit unsuspecting,
1: (laughs) and so there he goes, and then from there, actually, was able to, like, Create like a goodwill organization so other Vietnamese folks could move, and so I thought the normal life was like if you were Asian, you were Vietnamese. That was like my story. But
0: there weren't other Asians. There <laughs> were.
1: No, I mean, there were a couple of folks who were like Korean because I think also the Korean War, like that, all happened so close to each other. Um, also, Oklahoma very big, like Air Force Base things like that happening, and so by accident that happened and like erica shared my story was like you're either going to be an engineer or a pharmacist and like that's like what was supposed to happen as a vietnamese woman didn't happen obviously i said screw you i'm going to go to a liberal arts college majored in history and sociology there you go and i think from there i thought i was going to pursue like policy work like i'm going to be like president i'm going to be governor i'm going to make policy and ed policy work is probably like the most defeating work in the world oh <laughs> um like you just sit there I
0: Can imagine
1: <laughs> you write some papers and then you notice the names of like most of the researchers are like 10 years ago we're like white men yeah and often like been in the classroom for like one year maybe not at all and so The way I got there was like, after this like internship with professor, I was like, this is miserable. So I applied to Teach for America, knowing very well they opened in Oklahoma City. Taught in Oklahoma City for two years, making $31,000, 31 grand a year, and was asked to teach eight classes in a row. It was miserable, one class was 55, but wait, did you, you cut out
0: for a second, but did you say 35? 55. 50. See, I thought that was like a zoom. Th- so like 55, 55, five, like yes. 50 cent so plus five. Five
1: kiddos in my room because my first year as like this like bright eyed TFA core member was like, <laughs> she doubled test scores. Let's do that for all the kids.
0: Let's double her course load. Because <laughs> that's how it works.
1: Exactly what happened. <laughs> oh so my gosh. It was by accident. And that was when I was a math teacher, actually, you all. So okay. former math teacher of three years. And then when I moved to Denver, really like realized like math was not it. Like maybe I should leave education and then wow. found my way to history. And I just like love that 13 year old. So really in this space where they want to explore identity, yeah. really like seeing things connect with the real world and just like be proud of their identity and just Mm. really powerful. And so that's how I'm here.
0: Well, on behalf of the other social studies teacher on the call, we are so glad you came into the history classroom because we need you. Um, Awesome, thank you so much. Uh, Man, y'all are amazing. This is such an interesting group of people. And it's just so striking to me how many teachers of color just in general didn't d- kind of stumbled into the work or came into the work despite, you know, the other factors around them. And I just think that that says a lot about the pipeline and how uh, the teaching force comes to look the way it looks. So uh, we're going to move on to the next question. So i um, going to have some folks discuss how your Asian or Asian American identity uh, in identities, I should say, show up in your life and in your work. Um, how the how how did you first become conscious of your racial, ethnic, national identities? And I think, I feel like we've covered that pretty well in the introductions, I feel like everybody, but if you wanna say more about that, you can, but I feel like that's kind of been covered. Um, And how have your identities not limited to those identities, racial, ethnic, national, impacted the work that you do? in the life that you have lived and that that's a really lightweight question isn't it that's like just you know uh, just casual conversation right with people you just met um so let's let's take a few minutes and just uh hear from folks on this carla do you want to start us off on that
3: um first of all for me the term asian-american is always really interesting and something that i wrestle with a lot yeah um you know there's I went to the vigil on Saturday night at Coors Field, which was the site of where um, the Denver Chinatown used to be that was burnt down by a white mob. And one of the speakers, and I wish I could remember her name and I apologize for not remembering her name, listed off all of the Asian community, not all, the biggest Asian communities in the United States. It was 20 of them and their population numbers. And so that just gives you an idea of the countries of origin in the Asian American community. I mean, it's well over 20, 20 different languages. It's huge. So that term Asian American is really kind of this yeah. political term to have an umbrella to like unify the community. And so I always struggle with it. And um, I think most people who identify as Asian, Asian American probably mostly identify with their country of origin. Okay. And so I identify as Filipino, which is an interesting bucket in and That's of right. itself. That's
6: right. Yep.
3: You know, because <laughs> yeah. of all of the colonization that has happened by Spain, yep. by the United States. And so I always feel a little bit, I don't know, I got a little dab of Spanish, some Filipino some, you know, Southeast Asian, maybe a little Pacific Islander, although that would probably make the Pacific Islanders not happy to say that, but we are an Islander people.
0: Literally, literally a bunch of islands in the Pacific. So it wouldn't be inaccurate.
3: thousand, to be exact. Yeah. <laughs> Just a
0: few. Yeah. So oh, that is interesting. That, that's definitely something that you hear from other communities. You hear this from the, the so-called Hispanic community as well, that it's like, well, the only thing we really have in common is maybe a language, but not necessarily. And the fact that there's a category that we're all supposed to use. So um, I cut you off, though. you were, you were going into something else.
3: No, let's see. I don't remember what I was saying. Oh, so like, how does my identity show up? I think also because of how I look, I'm often mistaken for being Latinx or Mexican, Chicano, Mexican-American. Um, and so I, I always have like weird identity issues, especially because in the United States, we're supposed to check one box and it just doesn't work for me. Um, and so I really I really struggle with that. So I think what, what I... Bring to my teaching is this um, idea of growing up around immigrants. Um, I I feel really passionate about immigration issues. Um, You know, I grew up; there was always other languages, like my dad's native language. My mom's family, her parents were from Italy. I would hear Italian. Like, I just I love immigrant communities. I I feel like growing up in an immigrant community, while not perfect by any means. as an adult, I have realized is like a really special place to grow up. I did not grow up in an immigrant community, but my mom did and seeing that it was, it was really special. And so I feel like that's the lens I really bring to teaching and from an Asian point of view, you know, my dad was a Filipino immigrant. Um, so I bring that to the classroom and I always I bring that, um, that feeling of, of what it's like to be a person of color and watching also immigrants of color in this country and how they're treated. And so that's why I've just, I've always wanted to bring that lens to the the classroom Um, and just make, try it the best I can to make kids feel seen because I feel like kids in particular who are from immigrant families, um, students of color, oftentimes have to struggle to be seen or heard in school. And so that was an important piece to me because I often felt invisible in school. Um, I think also I really relate to the kid who has immigrant parents, but they were born and raised here and that kind of tension and those worlds that you are navigating with yep. um having an immigrant parent but you want to be like a teen an american teen dad
0: if you're not seeing it she's doing the universal yeah. theme, the theme <laughs> symbol i think yes. um, <laughs> google it it's there carla knows
3: yeah, and I I I really relate to that um, in my students for sure. So that I don't know if that answers the question, but that is kind of the lens that I'm trying to bring from my specific Asian American experience into the classroom.
0: Well, it's a loaded question, right? Because it's kind of like, <laughs> what, what do you, what of your identity do you bring into your spaces? It's like, uh lots of it. <laughs> so no, it's a yeah. great response.
4: <laughs> yeah. This is John. That was such a great response. I almost like I, I want to talk almost more about what Carla said than just the question if you don't mind uh, John taking notes.
0: I feel like John was like, oh, that's a good one.
4: <laughs> she everything she was saying, I was like, oh my gosh, absolutely. You know, like starting with the, the point about the, the idea of Asian American. It it you know it's it's a it's using the the largest landmass on the face of the earth to group uh, the most diverse ethnically and, and linguistically group of people you possibly can into one camp. Um, and, you know, Asians, yeah, like when they're significant of the world's population, you know what I mean? Like, Oh, not just, not yeah, not, not just differences. Like you said, significant differences that, that throughout history have often clashed. Well, in,
0: and uh, let me say this. I just want to put a plug for my history teachers. Yeah. Room. It's kind of like, I mean, I think you could very easily, Put Asians from different regions in the same room, and they won't understand each other. Say you put a Korean in a room with a German person; like they're not going to understand each other. Um, Mm -hmm. German Germans obviously being from West Asia, right? And um, Mm -hmm. you know, so I've never understood why Europe gets to be its own continent. I don't. They're literally connected. Anyway. Uh, I
4: feel you, man. That's my I, little I,
0: historical soapbox. So you know, West Asians like Britain and you know, um, France yeah, and that kind of thing. Yeah.
4: Well, <laughs> it's it's so interesting you say that because almost you know, like you say, there's so little that 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 like don't get me wrong, beautiful cultures all throughout Asia and there's there's a lot of humanity that connects us. Mm-hmm. But right now, is a, a you know, with all the the violence and the hate that we're seeing, yeah. one of the things that we can recognize is that we are united in how the West often hates us and, and how, um, and how, you know, when we're talking about Asian hate, you know, which sadly, again, has brought this panel together. It's, it's what unites our, our disparate um, experiences. You know, you're talking about a lot, you know, the experiences that we've just recently have are just the next one on a, on an endless scroll um, that includes anytime, you know, somebody was harassed because of 9-11 and the fact that they're from the Muslim community, like That's Pakistan right. or India. And, you know, the, 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 the war in Afghanistan continues, which is a war in That's Asia, trade right. wars with Central China. Yep. My, 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 my existence is based on a proxy war in Korea. You know, wow. it's, it's, Say that. it's one of those Say things that. where like Asian hate has, has been going on a long time and we've all been feeling it. And, you know, I I I struggle to think about, you know, solutions to these, but so when we talk about what I bring into my classroom from my cultural background, it's it's the the understanding that I was in school, I didn't learn about Asian excellence or yeah. you know contributions and accomplishments yeah. here in America. You know, you learn about the, the, the nuclear bombs dropped in Japan and, and Chinese railroad workers sacrificed for the transcontinental railroad and right. proxy wars and so on. And That's so right. I, I, you know, I want to uh, help my students not only be seen like Carlo was talking about, yeah. but they need to recognize that no one's going to be looking for them. They have to make themselves wow. seen. They've got to get loud. They got to recognize that no one's going to shine a light on them. And so they, they have no choice but to shine because if they don't, then our, our communities, our, our, our contributions will just go unnoticed. And unfortunately, a lot of us come from, you know, in Asian communities, you know, a cultural background that insists that, that young people be a little quieter, you know, and they, mm-hmm. they listen before speaking up. And so kids aren't always comfortable speaking up when they come from our communities. Yeah. And so in my classroom, I insist. And like I said, as a kid, I would have hated it, but it would have <laughs> served me well.
0: Yeah, yeah. Who knows what John Arthur could have become if he had a teacher like John Arthur, I'm telling you.
4: <laughs>
0: no, but I, you know, it. not not to trivialize um, <laughs> with jokes. I think um, I, I got chills when you said this thing about universal hatred because I think that you know when when we and and this conversation has got me really like trying to dig in more authentically into that question of like, well, why do we need to have like why why does why does an umbrella term exist for a group of, group of people like you know maybe there's an argument to be made that well through the census resources are distributed and that kind of thing but um but it seems like when Asian Americans are discussed it's usually in a way that a doesn't honor the diversity of Asian American communities and b is usually in a negative way or referring to a negative history. So, John, thank you so much for that. Um,
4: I apologize. I, do you mind if I just add one little thing? One more there thing. There? Do it. Do it. Do it. What you just pointed out, and this is really quick. Another thing that that does is it it, it hides and it just it makes it hard for people to see that certain communities within the umbrella of Asians suffer because yeah. because we get grouped together. You know, Absolutely. Southeast Asian refugees. Um, and their their academic performance gets lost in the, the numbers that come out of East Asian refugees right. or East That's Asian right. communities. So it's it's harmful. It's not just – it's very harmful and destructive.
0: Absolutely. And uh, those of you who are listening at home, you don't see the snaps that John is getting from the other members of the roundtable. So let the record show that there are snaps. <laughs> That's right.
5: Yeah, I really – I really appreciate that John brought that up, that it's a, this unified front now that there has to be against Asian hate. Um, I was just reading this article earlier today written by Kathy Park Hong that came out in The Atlantic. And it was about, I mean, the title of it is Why This Wave of Anti-Asian Racism Feels Different. And I think one thing that feels different for me specifically is the fact that it is all encompassing. It is. It covers that entire umbrella of Asians Um, when the Rodney King, you know, events happened in LA, it was the Korean businesses that were, you know, like lit on fire and destroyed, but it was the Koreans had to rebuild themselves and they stayed quiet and they rebuilt themselves. So it wasn't this coalition of, of Asians helping them out. And I think that in the article, it talks about like events that have happened in the past that have brought Asians together, like Vincent Chin, um, in, I forget where it was like Detroit.
0: Yep, and Maybe. this was this was kind of that watershed um, hate crime that was committed against an Asian American that really galvanized the movement. Is is that what we're what you're referring to?
5: Yeah, yeah, and I mean there have been events in the past, but I don't think I've I don't remember in my lifetime, and I was born in 1980 um, when there has been this unifying event that we really have to get behind. And it's it doesn't matter what kind of Asian it is because everybody like no matter what happens when you walk out like white people are like you're Chinese. That's right. And that that's kind of it, right? It doesn't that's matter right. what kind of Asian you are, you're Chinese. That's right. Um, and I don't know. It's interesting because for me, I am mostly majority of the time completely white presenting. Um, I mean, in terms of my identity, people tell me what I am. <laughs>
0: You know? Oh yeah, that's always fun. I, I
5: go to Chinatown and people call me Guaymui. And then like, I go anywhere else. They're like, where are you from? <laughs> you no, know, like really, where are you really from? So it's this constant people telling me who I am. And because I have that white presenting privilege, I sure. am um, I approach teaching about Asians and, and bringing my identity into the classroom, I feel like in somewhat of a different way. Um, teaching in San Francisco, I didn't bring it in there because all of my students were Asian. Um, and then I taught in Brooklyn and it was the school that I taught. at was really small and it was truly diverse, not in the way like we have diversity, but they exist in separate bubbles that don't yeah. interact. Okay. Right. It was truly diverse. <laughs> um,
0: is segregated, so, but you know, like, but the district is diverse, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
5: yeah. I, I feel like my identity comes into my classroom the most here in Denver um when I first moved into Denver it was felt really shocking to me I had like culture shock coming to Denver because I would just drive down the street and everybody was just so white to me yeah and I felt very out of place and then my first few years in teaching in high school I was like where are all the where where are all the Asian kids yeah they're not here like we had two Asian kids in the entire high school and one of these Asian kids called himself Ching Chong because he had been given this name and he didn't know that, like, wow. it's a really hurtful word. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I felt the need to represent or bring the Asian representation into the school because these kids were like, didn't know that it was offensive to say yeah. that he had chinky eyes. Yeah. And so, like, I instantly felt the need to teach. about what it means to be Asian what like what is hurtful what's not what does Asian mean there are so many different types of Asian and it's not like we're not all Chinese
0: right
5: I mean I happen to be but we're not all Chinese you know
0: (laughs) I am but not everybody
5: (laughs) yeah it was it was shocking to me what they didn't know about Asians here in Denver
0: well, especially the history that Carla referred to, um, the fact that, you know, Denver had a teeming and, and vibrant Chinatown that was burned to the ground by, by uh, white supremacists and just an incredible thing. You know, the, the point that you made about the Ching about the, the Chong nickname, right? Um, it, what's interesting to me, and this kind of connects to what uh, what John was saying, is that when I've asked students to talk about, to write about when they've first- realize that they had a racial identity um a lot of them talk about having that word, that set of words thrown at them um and uh it's just incredible for that to be the first realization that you're racially different so thank you for sharing that erica so let's see so um So are we? Like, did we get through all these, or or are we on? We're on brand, right? Yeah. Okay. Sorry. (laughs) Thank you. So
1: I, I've just like been thinking and just like, yeah, I think like big picture, thinking about like my story and my narrative. I like know very well, like my existence is also one of assimilation, right? And sorry, like tear up. Um, Um,
0: It's it's it's.
1: I think, like, I shared a few heridos, like. The reason why i go by tran is because my vietnamese name is not on my birth certificate yeah up until i was five years old i was called Can, and then all of a sudden thrown in the school system and told you're now melissa tran you're now melissa tran wow and it just like i don't think i got there until like most recently like five years ago and i was like oh my gosh like wow my whole existence is assimilation. I think about like my dad, when he came to the United States, the United States like openly was like, yes, you're gonna become a citizen because you fought in this war. He changed his name from Tunba Jun to Anthony William Trant. Wow. My mom changed her name from Whit Lung to Marianne Ann Long. And so I think that's been like painful because I like don't associate myself with like the name canon anymore, which is like why I've like chosen to decolonize my existence and like my life history and thinking like it's trans. Like that's what I like feel comfortable in. And then like there's this additional piece, like I'm reading the New York Times, reading op ed pieces. And I'm just like like these op ed pieces are like, How did this happen? How did the spike of anti Asian like hate come about? Was, like it's always been there. Yeah. Right?
4: Like, like it's a new thing.
1: It's not the th- I think the thing is like because I've assimilated, I've become quiet about it and accepted that as my existence for so long. And I don't think I actually knew I was Asian American until I went to college, liberal arts school in Color Springs, by the way, if you all know where oh, that is. Oh yeah. Rough place. Yes. And um I was in this American history class where I was talking about like the American like narrative through filming books read Joy Luck Club and then like this student stood up and said you know what I don't think Asians care about their parents and it was this like shock to me like are you like I cursed of course and was like (laughs) my parents came here to hope for like the best life for me yeah and I'm living that right now and it was just like this painful existence and so even when moving to Denver, I think like Eric said this, like I was the only Asian teacher in my network for quite a long time. I worked for a charter network and it's just like painful to know like I was it for so long. And now that like the far northeast is seeing like a lot of like growing Asian population with like immigrant families, because it's just like affordable part of Denver. Yeah. It's really great for me to, like, be there for kids. I advocate for, like, advisees who are Vietnamese-American, Asian-American, and I love that space to, like, have students feel seen, feel heard, and just feel like their voice matters, even when it's one-on-one. That, for me, is, like, why I'm still been in, like, middle school for 15 years.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. Wow. 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 Thank you so much. for that. Do not apologize. I mean, that, you know, the thing is that this, you know, this stuff and, you know, when we communicated on, on uh, Twitter about this process of decolonizing um, it's, it's painful work, you know, it's painful work. How many of us wear the t-shirts, you know, decolonize, but you know, that internal decolonization is really painful work. And um, wow. What a, what a story. Thank you, Tran, for sharing that. Um, Kim.
2: Tran, I just want you to know, don't worry. I, I, I was just crying in front of Gerardo and John just the just the other night. It's 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 all good. So all good. It's all, um, it, it's, all, it's all healthy. It's it's all healthy. It's all it's all healing. Um, Tran and everybody. I just I just I feel so much of, of what you're saying. And um, I, I think as um, you know, it's interesting. You know, why did I why was why did I go to Nebraska? Well, quite frankly, it's because in the mid 70s, my mom and dad they wanted to adopt a, a fourth child. They already had three biological children, and uh, my mom had seen something about um, the the Vietnamese uh, airlift of the of the babies or something, and so she kind of thought, you know, I want I want one of those uh, Vietnamese babies, and um, and of course she she called the adoption agency uh, that that serviced uh, Nebraska, and they said, you know, we we don't have um, Vietnamese children because we don't we don't work with uh, Vietnam. Um, but we do work with Korea. What about a Korean baby? And you know, to my mom, uh, that was that. What did it matter? And, and you know, and I don't say this story to um, you know make my family look bad. Trust me, we've had many, many, many discussions um, about about race. Um, as it turns out, my oldest brother. Uh, married uh, a Black woman. And so my (laughs) very non-liberal parents have uh, Korean grandchildren, white grandchildren, and Black grandchildren. So we've had many, (laughs) many, many conversations um, and fights um, about race uh, in in my family. And, um, you know, I realized that they could only do what they knew that they could do in the mid-70s in in Nebraska. So I I don't fault them, but it it is... um, it is it is an interesting um you know it is an interesting thing and yet as i i always knew kind of growing up that i was i was missing something i was missing a lot of things um and it wasn't until i was older uh when i when i had korean food that i i finally understood what what it was that i was missing and um like the first time that i went to went went back to korea i went with this group and like people like i i was pretty young when i left i was i was two years old but um but other people who are older, like they, they said that they had memories from, from just smells and, and, and things like that. And, um, you know, it's interesting. Like I, I relate a lot to um, a lot of the, the Korean way of thinking. Um, you know, Koreans are, are funny. Um, they, they believe in a lot of kind of like collect, uh, collectivism, if, if you will. And, um, you know, they believe in collective pain. Um, and they believe in, in collective uh, joy too, as well. Mm. And I mean, yeah. I, I can definitely um, um, relate to those things. And and I think that, um, but it, it's it's taken a lifetime because uh, when I go back to Korea, um, although I'm forced to use Korean in Korea, um, which is you know not not easy for me. Um, and uh, but uh, certainly, it's uh, I'm aware of how non-Korean I am in Korea. And yeah, in America, so similar stories to everybody else, I am completely aware of how non-American um, I am. Even though I have this American name, um, it's still, even my name, Kim, uh, my parents gave me that name without realizing that that was the most common uh, family name. I, I um, wondered, but thought, I wondered. <laughs> yeah, it is, but, to, but to them, Kimberly, he sounded like, which was my uh korean name okay so they yeah yeah so and again it it is it's interesting um how how things have come to be but now um because i do have this uh korean identity it's interesting because a lot of my students are really fascinated by korean culture a lot of (laughs) korean moves i have to say so uh they are really fascinated uh by language and food and Mm -hmm. dumplings and and everything so i mean in some ways um i mean they love k-pop and bts and which is funny because bts in korean it's not what it's it's you know it's like basically like saying like when you eat something spicy and you um, you're very uncomfortable the next day. Let me just say that's BTS. So <laughs> because you have a, amazing. can I say you know because you, you have a burning asshole is basically what it is. So um, oh, yeah, yeah, but that's not how they that's not how they have their name. But that's kind oh, of a no, cold no. Yeah.
0: <laughs> it's awesome. Wow. Yeah. It, it just. Um, Oh, that's such interesting stuff. Um, so, so again, we see just how important that is. And when you talk a little bit about, and, and Erica, you referenced this as well, about kind of feeling caught between cultures. Uh, for Mexican-Americans, there's this expression, ni de aquí, ni de ya, not from here, not from there. Um, and you know, Gloria Anzaldua has actually written about this concept um, in the context of Mexican-American women, but I think it applies to... Um, immigrants who are living in the United States as well that um, this idea of inhabiting a frontera borderlands between cultures and a really powerful concept that I think applies here we're going to take a quick break Um, we are going to pay some bills and uh, we will be back with this amazing panel stick with us We are deeply grateful for all your support these last few years. Your engagement on social media, your downloads, and your enthusiasm have kept us going since we started this Too Dope adventure nearly five years ago. Right, kid?
6: Yes. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts for your ongoing support of the content that remixes the conversation about race, power, and education. We have big hopes and dreams that you have inspired. And with your support, those dreams begin to take shape in reality. In the coming weeks, you will learn about projects that we can now go forward with because you
0: stepped up. Yeah, we're so happy. Of course, we still have numerous projects filed away that are awaiting your support. You can support these projects by visiting patreon.com slash 2 Patrons who join at the Tudope level get a 2 Nation sticker. And what's better than stickers? Um, it's designed by local uh, artist Sham. And for a limited time, limited time, the next five 2Dope patrons will get a copy of Cornelius Miner's book, We Got This. What?
6: What a deal. Hey that is and it's signed that's right and it's signed patrons will enjoy special access to us in the form of ask me anything threads throwback old episodes occasional zoom meetings and sneak previews to upcoming work and public appearances our upcoming podcast series the exit interview featuring the brilliant asia lions which highlights the stories of black teachers who are forced out of teaching is only possible because of our patrons.
0: and I, I can't wait. I can't wait. It's going to be so dope. So we asked and you responded. We look forward to growing and learning with you. Let's remix this conversation on race, power and education. Thank you, bro. What's up, everybody? It's Gerardo Sands. Kev. Uh, Kev is on some pretty important business at the moment, um, but we are having this incredible conversation that um, I'm sure he'll be sad to have missed out on. Uh, we are here with um, five educators from across um, the United States who identify in complex ways and ambivalently as Asian-American Pacific Islander um, educators. And uh, if you are for some reason just getting into the episode halfway through, go back to the beginning and listen to the beginning. And you'll understand some of the um, some of the ambivalence that we're talking about here. So before the break, we're talking a little bit about um, about ethnic and national identities, um, complex identities engaged in the classroom and how that kind of works. Um, we're going to pivot to more of a conversational um, segment in this. And this is where we are kind of getting going to get into kind of the, the even more like real and immediate stuff. So um, for my panelists um, there's been this rash of hate, motivated violence uh, targeting Asian and Asian American people uh, the last few weeks, especially. And, you know, as has been referenced by everybody in this uh, conversation. This is not when anti-Asian violence began. It did not begin a couple of weeks ago. Um, This is part of a longer history and that that symbolic violence that's been committed over a period of generations um, is is a part of the history but headlines are what they are right now. Um, So how have you all kind of been sitting with the events? Of the of the last few weeks um, what is happening with you and your community and um, how are you h- how are you working through this how is it impacting you
1: I think I had like two initial reactions one of like feeling numb like, America is racist, the history of America foundationally has always been racist. Cool, accept it, move on. But then the second piece is like, white supremacy, like, get off your high horse. Like, if we as like educators are trying to like dismantle that notion that like diverse voices don't matter or like they should matter, then like, why aren't we like, why is this still happening? Twenty twenty one.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That numbness, I think, is is common for a lot of folks who've had a history of this, but others.
2: I I think just to add to that, it it just kind of goes back to you know, and it didn't just start a year ago, even you know, politically. Um, yeah you know, with Trump uh, calling it the China virus and and the Kung flu. But what I distinctly remember is, you know, saying to people, um, you can't you can't say that it's uh, you you can't do that. It's actually putting myself and my family in danger if you perpetuate this and to have people say back to me, it's not racism. It's not racist to say that and um it's just it's just kind of a of a lifetime of being told that you know um this wasn't racism or that wasn't racism when that's distinctly how I remember it or that's distinctly how it felt to me and I mean I think that I think people have got to stop telling people that's not racism because If it is, it is, and and then we can have a real conversation about it. But 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 to deny it is is not is not going to help at all. Um, And I mean, I I think I I don't know if I if I mentioned um in in a session with Gerardo and and John. um, But when I you know, well I guess twenty years ago when I was twenty six, I was married to a Korean American man. Mm-hmm. And um, he was actually uh, stabbed, and he was stabbed to death in, in Boston. And, and that's not the part that, that I'm actually referencing. It's actually when I went to go visit the homicide detective, and he said to me, he said, well, I think probably what happened is that, you know, Jung was at the wrong place at the wrong time. And um, probably, you know, I mean, he was targeted because he was Korean, and um, and I remember him saying to me, "It's impossible to find who who could who would have done this. It's impossible. It just, you know, he said he said I'll, I'll try because you know that's my job, but uh, it's it's impossible." And I remember, you know, going back to Nebraska with this baby <laughs> who was four months old, and. Um, you know, I remember, you know, maybe calling him one more time and, uh, being told, you know, kind of the same thing. It's just, it's just impossible. You can't get anybody to speak about anything and accepting it. And I, I think now, I think now that I'm 46, I, I can't believe that I just accepted that. Why did I just accept that? It's, um, but I didn't, I didn't have any, um, power in that situation. I didn't, I didn't know that I could say that's not enough. That's not a good enough answer. You know, his, his life mattered to two people. It, it it mattered. Yeah.
0: Thank you for sharing that. Wow. And that, that's the interesting thing is we're here talking about these violent incidents that have taken place. Um, the victims whose names have been released and, um, who we mourn. Um, and, you know what what you're saying is that the the big picture of racism isn't just about these these outbreaks of violent murders that that it's 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 smaller ways yeah
4: yeah if i can you know kim had shared that story before and it's always stuck with me and that that piece where you know possible to find this and like the connection of of race to the crime you know is is mirrored right now in the case in atlanta where it's you know this guy was just having a bad day you know? that's right connects back to that Kate that 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 landmark case in detroit where it was you know these guys thought that this i believe he was chinese um this Chinese gentleman was a, a Japanese auto worker and they blamed him for the, the loss of their jobs there in, yeah. in Detroit. And so they 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 murdered him. And as I recall, they didn't serve any time. They received a fine and probation. And the judge was like, you know, these guys, they're just, you know, they're they're suffering from the the effects of this, you know, the loss of their jobs and industry. And and it's really easy for some reason for people to to make excuses. For crimes perpetrated against Asians, um, and you know this one recently in Atlanta is particularly painful because it it highlights the hypersexualization of Asian women. That's right. And the, the fact that that can be used as a, a foundation for for a killing spree is mm-hmm. disturbing to say the least. It's but again, connects that, back huh? to something that's been going on forever. Yeah. Oh, when you look at, you know, depictions of Asian women in movies and the way that they're talked about is as geishas or, you know, yeah. like they, they're always used as this object of, of sexual desire. Yeah. For, well, for and, and to your
0: point, right? the piece about um, the, the incident being perpetrated at a, at a massage parlor like that, yeah. that carries a specific yeah. dog whistle yeah. um, Absolutely. when we kind of talk about it.
4: absolutely it does and these are you know that's not something that that asians who go into the massage business have have called upon themselves you use the phrase massage parlor and automatically these connotations start coming to mind for people and that that has been placed upon these these people and and you know the 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 language that that you know kim was referencing from you know our president and others. There's there's two things I want to say about that. Number one, um, that that is heard by our children and it affects them. Last year I had a a young student slap uh an Asian student on the playground and they're best friends. And when I ran over to find out what the heck was going on, um the student who had slapped his Asian friend said, Oh no, it's okay. We're just playing. I'm I'm slapping the corona off of him. And you know they they, they Ooh, genuinely did not process how awful his his words and actions were in those moments yeah. and it's because they, it's just it was just there just floating around and and whether or not adults think that that stuff becomes internalized it does for our children and we see yeah. that as teachers in our schools and the other thing that that frustrates me in this, this is the last thing i'm going to say is right now it feels like in some ways talking you know speaking back to that that piece about white supremacy and and its pervasiveness in our society it almost feels like some people are 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 taking this as a moment you know within these these two uh camps in in the in the structures that we have in our society to 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 point at the other camp and say this is their fault this this and violence is their fault that's why they're bad it's like guys, this has been going on a long time. You're all guilty of it. We're all guilty right. of not standing up against it. Like yeah. it, it feels like it's being used in this, in this insidious way and it, it doesn't sit right with me.
0: Yeah. And, and to your point, and I think Erica, you also made um, reference to this earlier in the conversation, the murder of Vincent Chin. Um, even if you look it up on Wikipedia, they qualify the killers who are convicted of manslaughter um, they qualify by saying, well, you know, uh, Michael Nitz was a laid off uh, auto worker. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and and just in the quick Wikipedia entry, like, you know, the part that comes up on Google, they humanize Ron Evans and Michael Nitz more than they humanize Vincent Chin, who was beaten to death in, in a savage way. Um, thank you for that, John. That's, that's incredible. And, you know, to your point, you know, uh, words matter. And, um, you know, especially when we all work with young people, and we know the things that catch on, whether in social media or in mainstream media, these are things that they absorb one way or the other.
5: I think when Kim, when you told the story, and about how like, it just it feels like Asians don't matter when it comes to justice, it feels like, you know, it, it, we, we were very invisible in many ways. And this instantly brought to mind the last time I read um, Chanel Miller's memoir, Know My Name. And I remember when she when she came forward and like, this is me, I am Jane Doe. I was like, I knew it. I knew she was an Asian woman because in the white supremacy within the justice system and in Stanford, you know, you have this white Stanford swimmer guy who was so you know, sympathized with, and, you know, for 20 minutes of action, his whole life is going to get thrown away. And she had that very powerful letter. And it was just, it was things like that. It's just over and over and over and over again. And we're constantly told that's not racist. That's, you know, that's cultural appreciation. It's not racist. You know, (laughs) it's like, don't be so sensitive. I'm just really appreciating your culture. I'm just telling you you're pretty, you know, and When in her book, she talked about how she was targeted. He targeted like all the other Asian women at this party. Wow. And it's just that book really brought up a lot of issues for me. And just all of the things that have been coming up, like, again, none of this is new. I scroll through Instagram and it's like trauma porn. Yeah. I'm just constantly seeing these videos of grandmothers having to beat away their attackers. And it's extremely triggering. Yeah. Um, and it's, I can't help but feel numb to it. Yeah. You know, my friends send me texts like, how are you holding up? I'm like, do you really want to go there? Do you <laughs> actually want to talk about it? Because yeah. like, you haven't talked to me in a year. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so uh, it's interesting well, it trying is- to wrap my head around it.
0: Yeah. And, and to your point about the, the social media aspect of this, there's, there's that you know, the the posts that the obligatory posts that people want to make um to show that they, you know, to to signal that they care what, what they call that virtue signaling, right? Um and then there's the other aspect of, and I saw a tweet today that said, check up with your Asian friends, they're not okay. And I'm like, um yes. And um am I supposed to text a person and say, hey you're one of my Asian friends. How are you doing? It's just such a weird take on social media. Like, it, it's it's so strange. But um, but yeah, and, and Chanel Miller's story. I have not read the book. It sounds incredible. I, I feel like I need to, you know, bump that to the top of my reading list. But um, yeah. Thanks. We're dropping titles. We're dropping articles. There's all kinds of stuff that people uh, can share here. And before we get to the next person, I just want to also let everyone know that every article referenced, um, we will link it on the show page. And uh, that way you can kind of look at it. But what's really striking is that we're talking about a particular moment in the recent history of Asian American people in the United States. But I hope what everybody's hearing is like, yeah, this has been happening for a really long time. This does not actually feel different. It doesn't feel good. Um, It doesn't feel different.
3: I guess for me, I was really devastated. And Erica knows this because I texted her. We've been texting. Um, yeah, I was really devastated. I was really upset about it. And, and maybe for me, because it was the culmination of a history of invisibility. Um, also listening to, well, and they're immigrants and I know how hard immigrants work. Like, and, and they even said that before they even published like the kind of work that um, these women did, like the amount of hours they spent working. I already knew that. I already knew that because we already know immigrants in this country work tirelessly. So I already knew how hard they were working to provide for their families. And then hearing some of their kids that, that really gut punched me too, talking about, um, it's just, just that story. I know that story. I have friends who've lived it. I know our students live it, where their parents are working so hard in this nation for which they are trying to pursue the American dream. And, and that's what happened to them. And it's just, it's, it was a culmination of that and Asian invisibility, I guess, that just came to heads for me. Um, seeing, like you said, you said trauma porn, Erica, like seeing those pictures, especially of elders being beat up like that. Um, and this is true of many communities, but in many Asian cultures, like the elders, like the oldest people, like I, that one woman last weekend that has the two black eyes. Like I, I can't even, I can't even fathom doing that to like an old person. That is just that hurts me so much, especially because we know how revered elders are in many of our communities. Um, and when I say revered, like revered. Um, and so that's that's just been heartbreaking for me. I mean, I feel like I've been holding my breath ever since Donald Trump was elected, honestly. Um, with lots of issues with the way he talks about Black folks, with the way he talked talked about, um, you know, Mexican folks and Mexican American folks and Asian folks. I mean, the list goes on. Trans folks. Yeah. Um. And unfortunately, about a year ago, my my dad went into hospice and passed away on Holy Saturday, the day before Easter. And he went into hospice right when the NBA canceled, um, the season. Yeah. Do you remember that? And then the day after our our school district canceled, yep. and I remember thinking, um, when he went into hospice, I had these thoughts of, "Oh my God, I hope they treat him well. I yep. hope they don't look at him because the rhetoric had already started before everything shut down yep. um, about the China virus.
1: That's right. That's um,
3: right. And I remember thinking, like, "Oh my God, I hope they, I hope they don't look at him, and he doesn't, he isn't treated well. He was treated great." the hospice people were so amazing. Like everybody was so amazing, but it's like, why did I even have to have those thoughts? Like, yeah. what is that? Yeah. And so um, honestly, I think it's been for many people a really traumatic last four years. Absolutely. And so this is kind of the result of that on top of a bunch of history that's been around for a long time. Yeah. So yeah, I've been a mess. I finally think I'm coming out of it though, a little bit, a tiny bit
0: yeah well and that's the thing is that when you um you know what even even though folks have kind of shared that they feel numb that this is not surprising in light of the history of anti-asian sentiment and violence um it still hits you hard when when you see things like what we've seen um so thank thank you for sharing that um we're gonna we're gonna start to wrap things up um that, that last question, like the last question feels a little bit, um, a little bit naive, um, but I, I know that in order to disrupt and resist racism and racist violence, we have to find ways to stand in solidarity. Um, and so I guess the question that I would pose to, to you all is what does solidarity look like from outside of Asian American communities, um, so you know the initial question is like, "What can we do for you?" And like, I, that's like a ridiculous question because people ask me what they can do for me. I'm like, "I don't know." And racism, <laughs> you know. Um, but what does what does co-conspiracy look like? What does solidarity look like? What does um, standing together look like? In just in your own um, point of view.
1: I think someone said it earlier. It's just like, I was exhausted the day that Tuesday evening, Wednesday, when I was just like text message after text message after text message. And I'm just like, thanks for letting me know I'm your Asian friend over here.
0: If you're Asian, right? friend you're checking in
6: with. <laughs>
1: <laughs> thanks for checking in with me. But like, this is exhausting. And I think in the world of like, true diversity equity inclusion and what that really looks like is like commitment to do better always right like actions have to meet words um and that's particularly like around dismantling white supremacy yeah and i think another thing that like i've really been thinking about is like the conversation about intent versus impact yeah don't tell me about your intentions that's show right. me with your impact that's like right. i'm so exhausted with the it wasn't my intention to like sexualize you. It wasn't my intention to say like, make an Asian joke. Like the impact plays harder than like what you intended to do to make light of the situation. Yep. And so, and then the last piece for me is like, honor the human condition, right? Like the human condition truly, truly matters. And we've lost sight of that a little bit.
4: Yeah. Thank you. Oh. Oh. So, for me, it comes down to just, you know, what we do as teachers and what we know to be best practice, you know, try and make sure that you are using practices that are culturally relevant and responsive to the kids in your classroom. Um, Teach our history, um, celebrate our accomplishments and our excellence in your lessons. Um, Also, you know, help us push to have our you know, data disaggregated by ethnic group and, and not just all clumped together. Because again, too many people within that umbrella of Asian are being hurt by the fact that they can't be seen because they're they're. It's just assumed that they're all good, man. Look, Asians are doing great. So all Asians must be fine. You know, that's, that's doing a lot of harm in our communities. If you could do those two things, celebrate us and see us, um, we'll be doing a whole lot better.
0: Thank you, I love it. We need to put that on t-shirts, celebrate us and see us. And like, I, I just think that that's just really powerful. That wasn't meant to sound as funny as it did, but, um, you know, but definitely, thank you, John.
4: I feel you, man, yeah.
3: Um, this has been said many times before and it was said at the vigil on Saturday night too, that our our liberation is inextricably tied to each other. And I, I just really firmly believe that. And the way people showed up um, on Saturday was was really impressive to me. In fact, when the speakers said, I thought there would be 75 people, there were, there were hundreds of people. Um, and so these cross-cultural coalitions are so empowering to me. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I think that is that really could be the answer to pick up to pick up where you know Malcolm X and Martin Luther King and Cesar Chavez and other activists Mm -hmm. were doing in the 60s with their anti-colonial global movements yes um I think we we've really got to get back to that um, because our liberations are inextricably tied to each other. We can't work in vacuums. It's just, we will not make the progress that we want. And so um, that's where I really see the the value of this work. Yeah.
0: Thank you, Carla.
2: Um, I think the only thing that I'm gonna add is actually just kind of a message for our uh, white brothers and sisters. Cause I, I see this a lot with, with white people. I find that um, after um, something like this happens or um, after, you know, what happened in, in the spring, um, a continuation that they are all ready to join um, the diversity committee. They're all ready to fight when those they're going to be in a book
5: happen. club. They're
0: going to join a they, book club. That,
2: they want to, they want to read, a book. and I'm not <laughs> saying there's anything wrong with reading books and, um, you know, that they want to read the book. They, they want to check in with you. That's they right. want to they want to do all those things they want to they want to empathize and then when they get to the meeting they want to take it all over and talk about how right. bad they feel how guilty right. they feel that's how right. bad they feel and, and and not that that discussion isn't necessary but then 3 weeks later when it's no longer trendy they're no longer to be seen
1: that's right
2: so i guess my message is, is that if you really care about us and you really care about equity and, and culturally responsive teaching and, and, and living in a world that, that is better for everybody then stay with us and, and, and keep fighting with us but don't don't hop on when it's trendy
0: that's so well said it's amazing
2: I,
5: I read a tweet the other day that said um, if any of y'all post a yellow fucking square I'm going to kill you <laughs> <laughs> and that's that's just where I'm at Yes. yeah, so jaded by performative action. Yeah. When it's, when it's trendy, you know, let's all join the book club. Let's have these equity meetings. And I'm in terms of me as an educator and, you know, being a professional within DPS, we have equity modules that we have to go through. We, yeah. we try and talk about equity at PDs, but it's, it's like, I don't, I don't need to be tell, told what white privilege is. Because right. I have white privilege. That's right. But I also recognize it. And so I feel like there's a lot of just tone deaf PD. And so my one ask is just make it better. Yeah. Well, and a lot well, of the PD is for white people.
0: That's right. Not for us. 100%. 100%. 100%. There, I saw a tweet, like, since we're comparing tweets, um, I, I saw a tweet that was, uh, and Kevin and I referenced it on our last episode what to the Negro is an equity PD? And so paraphrasing from the great passage from Frederick Douglass, um, it's kind of like, so what to people of color is an equity PD? And I think that's a very important question. Uh, Thanks for that, Erica. No yellow squares, y'all. That would be horrible. Don't do it. Or
3: like you said earlier, Gerardo, maybe maybe the PD should just be like, don't be racist. Go figure it out.
0: (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) I love it. stuff so any parting thoughts um from anyone else all right well
3: i just want to thank you for having the space and for having us on this has been really really lovely for me and meeting new people
0: yes follow each other everybody here is dope um no and thank you for coming on you know I think that um I think that the more we are able to just hear people's stories hear people how they're kind of existing in a moment um because the key to ending all of this is we just got to freaking humanize people like you know human beings feeling human things um through awful incidents of human catastrophe and um and i think that's the most important thing so um i want to thank my guests erica kim tran John Carla y'all are amazing this was a phenomenal conversation if you like what you are listening to here on the 2 Dope Teachers and a Mic podcast uh, give us a follow on Instagram and Twitter at 2 Dope Teachers you can also like us on Facebook or as Cornelius Minor said your auntie can like us on Facebook um, facebook.com slash 2 Dope Teachers and a Mic um, you can also email us um, at 2Dope Teachers at gmail.com common in fact this show idea came from a listener so uh we are really appreciative of um, of that listener for letting us know um and we ask that if you are um if you like what you're hearing rate us give us five star rating uh write a review share this widely um because these are stories that need to be told uh thanks y'all
6: we'll catch you next time
0: right, y'all. So what is a behavior that younger you engaged in that would be an issue in your current classroom? So in other words, what is something that the younger version of you could get in trouble for doing in adult use classroom? (laughs) So I I can give my example. And then, and we can have folks kind of share. So I, so this might shock people who know me. um, And those of you who don't know me as well, you're going to learn this real quick. I talk a lot. I love to talk. It's why I have a podcast. It's why I'm starting another podcast. When I was a little kid, I could not shut up to save my life. Like I talk to everybody. You move me across the room. I'm yelling across the room. I just want to be connected to people. And that would actually be a problem in my class right now because I want kids to talk. I want kids to share their opinions. But as a teacher, I always struggle when there's one that really has a lot to say and it starts to kind of step on the toes of other, like they take up a lot of space. So younger me takes up a lot of space. Older me wants kids to take up space like particularly kids of color and um our young women of color but i like i don't know if i could handle young me like 15 16 year old me in my classroom today so that's kind of what we're looking at what about the rest of you? what would you get in trouble with for
2: i don't know that i would get in trouble for this but i definitely think it might have been a little bit immature but uh when i was in high school that's kind of when i would uh, realize that i was korean Uh, which was a big deal because uh, I actually grew up with a white family. So it was a very, very big deal for me to realize that. Well, I kind of went through my um, phase of realizing that and then just kind of seeing um, and being angry for the first time in my life about a lot of the racism that I had experienced, you know, being uh, in an all white environment. And I I distinctly remember uh, one day in high school, I just shouted at everybody, and I, I told everybody they were racist, and I stomped out of the room. Not saying that that's, uh, you know, uh, but uh, that, that was me.
0: That feels very on brand. Um, <laughs> others?
4: I'll jump in, because yours reminded me of this, Hedda. I... I like my students not necessarily to be loud, but to be productively vocal, right? I want them talking. I want them uh, stating their opinions and backing it up with evidence and reasoning. And as a kid, I was painfully shy. I love to hide. And I, I wouldn't say that a kid gets in trouble for that in my class, but they don't necessarily get away with it. You know what I mean? I, 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 I don't try to put them on the spot. I don't want them to 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 be traumatized by the experience of sharing with their peers, but I do constantly find openings for them to shine, and uh, they don't always want to, but they can't help but do it when you when you set up the you set the table the right way and you give them the opportunity to to be acknowledged for for the brilliance that is them. Um, young me would have hated it, but. Secretly, I think I would have loved it too. You know, like, oh man, thank you for the applause. Yes. I feel like grown, I feel like grown,
0: <laughs> grown you would have been like,
4: man, that, that John kid, I know there's something there. Why can't you see it? I see it. I feel it. Come on, John. <laughs> That's why he won't make eye contact with me. I know it. He's hiding, <laughs> he's hiding his genius. And really, I'm like, no, just please don't. Please don't. Yeah. It'd have been healthy for me. Yeah.
3: um it's funny you mentioned that john because now i'm seeing i definitely liked to hide but at the same time um i guess i put myself on blast without knowing that i was doing it because i loved talking to my friends in class um i also have a really short attention span and so um that actually plays out as a teacher for myself as well. Like where I feel like students know they can get me off something really quick and I try to brain it back in, but oh my gosh, they, I think they love taking me down rabbit holes because I can easily, easily go there. You can't help yourself. Like, yeah. You help like yourself. today I had, um, uh, I had to take my puppy to doggy daycare and you have a webcam that you can watch them. And so I would like, intermittently in class turn on the doggy cam so we could see what she was oh, doing she no, was okay look at,
5: look at her oh she's cute look at yeah. her oh my god
3: yeah so that's i just have a really short attention span and so the classroom i just remember getting so antsy even though our classes were probably like only 45 minutes which as a teacher 45 minutes is so short but first, um, I just <laughs> Could not pay attention for that long sitting in a desk listening to a lecture, and yet you know we have students who feel the same way. And again, you know, I don't know if I would fault them for that necessarily. So I try to really switch things up and not do the same thing for the entire period. I try to break things up, but um, yeah, that's 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 my story of 15 year old Carla.
0: Yeah. For for me it's staff meetings and Kevin will tell you that he has to remind me of half of the things that are said in a staff meeting because seven minutes and I'm done. Like I just I'm doing other things. I'm texting, I'm getting him in trouble, you know, like that kind of thing. So yeah.
5: Well, sixteen year old me was a very bad student. <laughs> I cut school every every Monday. Every Monday oh, okay. I cut school. Yeah, my high school was one of the few high schools in San Francisco that had block periods. And I knew block periods were really hard to make up. <laughs> and they happened, you know, Tuesday through Friday. Monday, we had every class for only 40 minutes. So I was like, Monday means nothing. Yeah, we don't do anything. Um, no. So every Monday, I cut school and went to the coffee shop, went to the yeah. beach, hung out <laughs> with my friends. That's awesome. And not a single teacher called home. Wow. So I got so, away with it every time.
0: So, so grown Erica might actually call home grown Erica might be like for sure. So I feel like the pattern. Yes, I feel like Mondays are a problem for Young Erica, and ooh, Young Erica would have gotten in trouble. (laughs) All right, Trent.
1: Um, I'm thinking like senior year high school. I got kicked out of classrooms a lot because I just like like to have it with teachers and just like prove them wrong. Yes, and thinking about like my current classroom, like if we are inclusive and like accepting diverse voices, like you <laughs> like shutting down that kiddo that was me would not be a great place, especially when they're like 13, 14 years old. So yeah, I got kicked out a lot.
0: That's amazing, it's amazing. Ah, such good stories y'all, this is really cool. I really like how how it's like funny and reflective also because you know, adult teachers were at once young people and you know, that plays a role in our lives. All right, going to pause for a second.